entirely different story if they were three wise women. That's the rumor. Apparently, the three wise women would have asked directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, brought a practical gift, and cleaned the stable and cooked a casserole. I don't know if that's all true or not, but it was, it was wise men, not wise women. They went on a journey, and they found a Savior. There, there's a joy, a wonder of joy at Christmas when we realize that the road we've been traveling on intersects with the Savior who died for you. The more difficult the journey of life, the greater the joy in finding that Savior. He is worthy to be pursued, and He is worthy of all that we have to offer. If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start at verse number 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the, are, are Judah, are not the least among you the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called unto the wise men, gathered, uh, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. When you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And they were coming to the house. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm going to preach today for a few minutes on the wonder of Christmas, joy, the joy in Christmas. Father, we thank you for this time we have. I pray that you'd help us now to, uh, as we continually try to do every Sunday during this season, refocus the attention on what the reason for the season is. And I pray today as we do that, may you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Astronomers tell us that two years before Christ's birth, a conjunction happened between the planets Jupiter and Saturn. The next year after that, Mars joined this conjunction. Evidently, this occurs only once every 800 years. In 1603, the famous astronomer, astronomer Kepler uh, discovered this conjunction and uh, uh, how many times it happens and all that. And he noticed that when these three planets converge, a brilliant star is visible between Jupiter and Saturn. Kepler believed that a similar star had appeared in the uh, same circumstances around the birth of Christ and that this was the star seen by the wise men. I don't know. Quite frankly, I don't care either what it was, but they saw a star, amen, and it took them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it was enough to send them on a journey. And they followed that star to the promised Messiah. No doubt it was a difficult journey. It cost them time and resources to fulfill. Uh, ultimately, though, it was worth it because it allowed them to come face to face with the newborn king. After all the miles of searching and persistence, the star guided them to the Savior. They were likely filled with all kinds of emotions, uh, wonder and 
and uh, reverence, uh, I, I believe, also with the gifts they gave, but no doubt also joy. So who were these men? There's a lot of misinformation about the wise men if you search places like our hymn books. I'm not putting the hymn book down. I love the hymn book, but don't ever go to the hymnal for your doctrine. Okay, go to this book for your doctrine. The hymnal has some things that are not quite, uh, for instance, Jordan, crossing over Jordan, and the hymnal always uh, pictures heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that crossing over Jordan represents the victorious Christian life. Uh, because after you cross over Jordan in the Bible, they still had a lot of battles. Uh, you, you'll still have battles in your Christian life, uh, but once you get to heaven, you won't have any battles anymore. Well, one of them here is, you know the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Uh, that there is some, There's some misinformation there. We don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but let's look at Bible reality versus Christmas uh, plays at church, okay? Some of them get these a little, little bit differently. Number one, nowhere in the Bible does it indicate there were only three wise men. Uh, there were probably many more than that. Number two, they weren't kings. Number three, they probably were not from the Orient. Where were these wise men from? It, the word wise men originally here is a Greek word, megas. Uh, they were a group of people from the Medo-Persian culture we first meet this group of people in the book of Daniel. And uh, the, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says, Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astro astrologers, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. That word magician in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it, the same word is used for that word magician and wise men in the New Testament. Now, after Daniel interprets the dream in Daniel chapter 2, he is put in charge of these wise men. And I would like to think that Daniel would teach them, these men, about God and messianic prophecies. And so the wise men, they were astronomers, they were scientists, they were astrologers. They rose to great power and influence in this Medo-Persian culture. This teaching, uh, their teaching which is known as the laws of the Medes and Persians are listed both in the book of Daniel and the book of Esther. They were considered also to be kingmakers. A king could not rise to power before the wise men would approve his throne. Uh, they, their influence was in place at the time of Jesus in the region of Parthia, which is uh, just the uh, eastern border of the Roman Empire, what today is Iran. Somehow, these men knew about the promise of the coming Messiah. Maybe it reached all the way back to Daniel, but somehow they knew about the promise of the Messiah, and they, they undertook this quest when they saw the star. Number four, they were not at the manger. In almost every nativity scene, or we call it a crash, in every crash or nativity scene, you see the three wise men there worshiping the baby Jesus in a manger. But the wise men did not arrive while Jesus was in the manger. They came about two years later and even talks about here how they went into the house. Number five, they most likely did not travel on camels. Now, that just bursts our picture, doesn't it? You have the three wise men riding in on camels, uh, as, as Persian dignitaries, they likely traveled in a large caravan, probably riding on fine Persian horses. They would have been accompanied by servants and a protection detail of soldiers. You remember here in verse 3, if you see what we read a minute ago, that the Bible says Herod uh, and was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Three guys riding on camels isn't going to trouble a city. A large party of dignitaries would, though. 
Now, when the star brought them to Judea, they headed straight for Jerusalem, which is the most likely place a king would be born. And when they got there, they met a tyrant. He was known in history as Herod the Great. King Herod was the son of an Edomite, but he was a practicing Jew. He was absolutely merciless uh, he, to protect his own power. Here he was sitting on the throne of David when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem. Never had David's royal house fallen lower than this point here. The long-promised Messiah, heir to David's throne, is born in a manger, and he's a humble village carpenter, while an Edomite is sitting on David's throne. All of Palestine was under Herod's reign. It was one of bloodshed, hatred, suspicion, and terrible atrocities. He murdered every rival possible uh, to his throne. He murdered his wife's brother, who at the age of the wife's brother was 17 years old, just because he was popular among the Israelites. He murdered his own wife, Mary Ann, because he was suspicious of her, and he murdered both of her sons. Caesar Augustus said of Herod, I'd rather be Herod's pig than I would be Herod's son. Uh, that's what the, the kind of uh, reputation that he had. In fact, before he died, he changed his will three times, disinheriting and then finally killing his firstborn son, Antipater. Herod's cruelty affected his brain, and history tells us that he was actually quite insane. This is the man the wise men appeared in front of. A dangerous, distrustful, devious, deceitful despot they showed up in front of. Then the bombshell question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Not prince, but king of the Jews. These words would disturb to the depths of his soul this, uh, this uh, paranoid, evil man, Herod, and it did. It was no wonder that Herod and the entire city were troubled. He would be troubled because here he hears about someone that is about to, or due to his paranoia, think that somebody could take his throne. And all Israel would be troubled because what in the world would Herod do next? When he gets upset, blood is shed. So they were troubled to say the least. Now Herod knows enough about Jewish scriptures to know the promise about the Messiah. But that's about all he does. So he wastes, knows anyway, so he wastes no time. He gathers the scribes and the uh, learned people together, the chief priests, and basically says, you people say you're uh, expecting a Messiah. Where would he be born? So they uh, told him he would be born in Bethlehem. You see, uh, the verse number six is, is the prophecy about Bethlehem, him being born there. Uh, so then he asked them when... He asked the wise men when he was born so that later then he would use, or when that star appeared so that later he would use that timeline to murder all the boys under the age of two there in that town. How sad uh, to see this horrible man. Also, another sad thing we see here that uh, he was to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is only six miles from Jerusalem, about 5.6 miles from Jerusalem. And so you could walk it in less then two hours. It's only six miles. But here is a group of religious leaders who've been waiting for the Messiah their whole life. They just get information that he might have been born in Bethlehem, only six miles away, and they don't even go check it out. That's amazing to me. Six miles from Jesus. Six miles from salvation. 
six miles from forgiveness, six miles from eternal life, and they were too busy being religious to go find Christ. The pride of outward religiosity as opposed to seeking an inward reality with the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion still gets in the way of a lot of people coming to Christ even today. Uh, the wise men knew so little, yet they traveled so far. The scribes knew so much, but they wouldn't even venture six miles down the road to meet the Messiah. How sad. I encourage you today, friend, if you've never come to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are so close today, right here, right now. You have that opportunity. Don't make the mistake of the scribes and the Pharisees and disdaining it or despising your opportunity. The scribes represent apathetic religion. They knew all the prophecies. They knew all this different thing, but yet when they hear about it, it just they just yawn. Jesus said this about uh, them in Matthew 13, 15, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted and I should heal them. Essentially what Jesus is saying, I'm right here, and no one's interested. He could still say the same today. Six miles was too far to go. Uh, leave that up to a group of Gentile astronomers. What a tragedy to see this in Scripture. What a tragedy to still, still see that today in people's lives. Well, the wise men followed the star, and they found their way into the presence of this newborn king. The Bible says here, we read, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Notice, by the way, they worshipped him. They did not worship her. Uh, as godly as Mary was, and she was a very godly woman, we must be careful not to put her in a place that, that the Bible does not put her. The worship of Mary is a godless, humanistic, wicked philosophy. We ought never worship a person. And nobody would be more upset about it and probably is in heaven than Mary herself, that anybody should worship her. She was a sinner saved by grace, just like each and every one of us need to be. So they gave Jesus here, the Bible says they gave him three different gifts. This is, by the way, why people associate with three wise men, because there were three gifts. Not necessarily the case, but that's where we get that number three. F.W. Borham wrote a story and this isn't, this isn't Bible, this is just a story, but I think it's an interesting uh, way of looking at it. He wrote this story about one of the wise, three wise men felt that the world needed, what the world needed was a king. A king to put down unrighteousness, to bring prosperity and peace to mankind. So he brought a royal present, a gift of gold. The second wise man, knowing that God needed to come down in human form, so he wanted God to be manifest in the flesh, he brought frankincense. This is a gift for deity. They use frankincense as incense in worship. The third hoped that the star would lead them to a savior. The world was in a sinful place, desperately in need of a savior. But one who would take on himself the sins of mankind, atone for them, would obviously do much suffering, and so he brought myrrh. Myrrh was used to embalm the bodies of the dead. So Borham writes in his story, they came to Bethlehem and when they saw the star and uh, who it led them to, they were overwhelmed. The first one said, I have found my king and he presented his gift of gold. The second said, I have found my God 
and he gave him his, his gift of frankincense. The third said, I have found my Savior, and he presented his gift of myrrh. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Hallelujah, we found all those things in Christmas. Now, isn't that better than a fat guy in a red suit? Amen? Let's really celebrate the right thing this season. Practically, the wise men took a different route back to their homes to avoid Herod. But I like to believe that they also entered a new way of life from that day forward. Today, we do not have to follow a star to find the Savior. We have in our hands here today the Word of God. And uh, it's, it, this is uh, in a country today, though, where 87% of people have a Bible in their home. The average home has three Bibles in it today. More than half of Americans have read very little or nothing in the Bible. I say to you today, wise men still seek him, and fools still despise him. Uh, make sure that you do not seek the wrong thing this season. One of the blessings of the Christmas story is the people that were involved. Who came to Jesus? Who was involved? Well, shepherds and wise men were two of the main characters in this story. But as far as, now don't misunderstand, these wise men, where they came from, they would be important. They would be a, an important part of that culture, that society. They would have position. But as far as the Jewish nation is concerned, in, in the Christmas drama, all the wrong people are cast. You have Mary and Joseph as parents. They were unknown. They were marginalized. They were poor. You have the shepherds. They were outcasts, the lowest that society had to offer. Then you have the wise men. Ethnically, they would not be in the in crowd. Theologically, they would not be in the in crowd. Where are the theologians in this story? Where are the people of pedigree? Where are the rich and influential? You see, Jesus was born in a poor family. We know the family was poor because when they went to the temple, they offered two birds. This was the uh, least the Bible said that allowed this for very poor families. Jesus was raised a common man and died an executed criminal. I was thinking this week on this, and just as a thought exercise, let's, I'll throw it at you as well. How would you do it? If you're the campaign manager for the Lord Jesus Christ, how would you go about accomplishing? We're not trying to get him elected to office, you understand. What we are trying to do is that make it so that 2,000 years from his life, Almost everyone in the world will still know who he is. Uh, 2,000 years after he dies, a significant percentage of the world's population still make him the centerpiece of their life. All this time, uh, you bring Jesus to a place in society where, he, where whole civilizations are built on his teaching. You would want him to be the most influential figure in the history of the world. My question is, how do you get him there? if you're in charge of doing that. Now, there's probably different answers, but probably we would not have done it the way he did it. He kind of broke all the rules there. He avoided all the political networks, uh, the uh, academic influence. In the eyes of the world, he did everything wrong. The world emphasizes, you see, physical attractiveness, brilliance of thought, influence, power, money, politics. Jesus did none of these things. The simplicity of the Christmas story is symbolic of his life to come. 
God at Christmas time began to show in the life of Jesus the superficiality of all that the world desires. The world wants influence. We want power. We want our teaching to prevail. We, wanna, uh, we want everybody to know our name. How do we go about it? We don't go to the little towns. We don't go to the poor. We don't go to the outcasts. We, the Bible even tells us Jesus did, was, didn't present a striking figure. He was, not a, uh, he was not that handsome of a man. I'm not being disrespectful. It says in Isaiah 53, 2, he had no former comeliness. That means good-lookingness, basically, in our language. And when we shall see him, there was no beauty that we should desire him. He was just a normal person. He did everything wrong by the world's rules. He did everything right by God's standards, and he triumphed. And yet today, we allow the lack of those things, the world, to steal our joy. Man, we better look again at the Christmas story and learn a lesson. The world conditions us to what's important. To them, professional status, possessions, power, performance, influence, looks, talent. And we complain at the fact that we don't have a lot of these things. We lose sleep at night because of the lack of some of those things in our life. Some people can't stand looking in the mirror because of the way they look. Or they can't stand looking at their bank account because of what's not there. You know what? Just as bad, some people love looking in the mirror because of what they see, and some people love looking at their bank accounts. Probably just as bad as the first. The one that we celebrate after 2,000 years, totally scorned all the things that the world says is important. He shows us in a manger, in the middle of manure and filth, that the fixations of this world are foolish. You don't need them. You can set those things aside. The Christmas story challenges us. Look at those things which have that tight grip on, your, on you, on your life, and the things that the world says are so important, but they're shallow, and they never, ever will bring joy to you. They'll bring momentary happiness, but they won't bring joy. Our joy ought not to hang in the balance of our circumstances. That's why the angel said in Luke chapter 2, <coughs> verse 10, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. He is our joy. Things ought not be our joy. The worldly wise of his time discounted Jesus and his teaching. He wasn't of their political party. He wasn't a theologian like they were. He didn't have the degrees. and he, he, They thought he was just a flash in the pan. Gallim, uh, Gamaliel actually talked like that. That uh, just if, if it's real, it'll it's going to go away anyway. Just let it go. Don't try to fight it. They thought they'll end his life and he'll be forgotten. Yet here we are, all these years later, and he's still not forgotten. Amen? We still celebrate him every year at this time. Today, worldly wisdom still looks at Christianity to scorn it. Every year, national groups, it'll happen again this year, take out full-page newspaper ads, uh, get hundreds of television ads to fight against nativity scenes because they're so dangerous, right? Uh, nativity scenes, they are dangerous to them. Amen? As was mentioned in our video, Jesus is still a threat to wickedness. He is still a threat uh, to, to tyranny. And the claim often by the world is surely, now that technology is here, surely it's all going to die out, but it keeps on moving forward. 
You don't see services held all across the world to honor philosophers like Plato and Socrates. Do you think human philosophy can put families back together, break addictions, give people hope? Jesus does all these things. He continues to change lives to repair relationships and to restore families. But the world rejected Him then, they reject Him now, and they'll reject you at times as well if you follow Him. But our joy does not come through acceptance from the world anyway. He is our joy. He's the one that we ought to get that joy from. Why don't more people seek Him? I don't have a clue. Why don't more, more people don't seek him? Think about these men here, how costly of a trip this was for the wise men. They couldn't take a United flight, a short flight to Jerusalem, and then an Uber over to Bethlehem. Didn't have those at that time. This large caravan went on a trip of several hundred miles. It was a monumental undertaking. The round trip could require several months. Some scholars say it was even over a year. But visiting Jesus was such a high priority for these men, they were willing to do it at any cost. And there's always a cost associated with following after Christ. We may lose relationships with family and friends. We may suffer mockery or even persecution. We may have to make significant changes in our lives that cost us time, talents, and treasure. But, oh, friend, I promise you that whatever the cost, it is well worth it when you get to your destination. When your star, which is your people or uh, in your life or the circumstances in your life, when your star comes to rest at the foot of the cross and you meet your Savior, nothing will compare to the joy that will fill you then. Amen? He is our joy. What happened to the wise men when they got to where they were going? Look, uh, look at verse number 10. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Like many of us, <coughs> they could have tried to find their joy in people or things. They were, no doubt, well off financially, yet they did not find their joy in their possessions. They were, no doubt, as wise men, they were very learned men, but they did not find their joy in their knowledge. They were men of great position but they did not find their joy and power or influence. No, they found their greatest joy being in the presence of Jesus Christ. There's a lesson there for all of us. Do you find the same kind of joy in Jesus? Or are you looking for it elsewhere? This Christmas, instead of obsessing over presence, how about we make it about a person in our life and in our families? As you read Matthew chapter 2, one thing is abundantly clear. Everyone involved here in these first 12 verses all had the basic same information. They all knew a baby was born in Bethlehem. They all knew who the baby was. Herod knew and wanted to kill him. The scribes knew and they ignored him. The wise men knew and they worshipped him. My question to you today is, what will you do with him? We know he was born. We know he's available to us. What will you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? At the beginning of the last century, a very wealthy widowed man shared a passion for art collecting with his only son. There were only two left in their family. Together they traveled around the world and adding to the uh, priceless treasures to their collection. 
they, works like Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and many others were added to their collection. And this father really just, uh, he just really enjoyed and, and uh, had great joy from spending this time with his son and, and how the son was becoming an, an accomplished art collector. In 1914, as winter approached, uh, the nation went to war and the young man was called to serve his country. After only a few weeks, the father received the telegram that so many parents worry about getting. His beloved son had been killed in action. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holidays with tremendous sadness. But on Christmas Day that year, there was a knock at his door, and when he answered it, he saw a young soldier who introduced himself as a friend of his son, said that they had served together and they had spent a lot of time sharing a love of art like uh, even the father did. And he said, in fact, I'm an artist. And he had a, he said, I wanted to give you this. And he gave him a package. The father opened up and it was a painting that this artist had done of his son. Oh, it wasn't any genius work. Nobody in the world would have looked at it with any great uh, being impressed. But to the father, it meant the world. He had captured the, he, he had captured the, essence of who his son was and his looks and his face there. And so the father shoved aside millions of dollars worth of artwork to make room to put his son in the prominent place in the home. And he spent that Christmas holiday uh, just staring up and looking at this painting of his son. Ten years passed. The old man died. Uh, the art world waited with anticipation for the uh, upcoming auction for all these different works of art. And the day arrived, the art collectors from all over the world uh, gathered to bid on these prized possessions. The auction began with a painting that was not on any museum's list. It was actually the painting of this father's son. Now, nobody was interested because it wasn't any great picture, but the auctioneer started and uh, said, who will give me, who will start the bidding out with a hundred dollars? There was no sound except for one person raised his hand and complained, listen, we didn't come. I understand that was his son, but we didn't come for that. We came for the priceless works of art that are still to come. Why don't we just move on to that? The auctioneer said, no, it was in the man's will that we sell this painting first. And so he again tried to get a bid. Finally, a neighbor of the old man offered $50. He said, that's all I have, but I knew the boy, so I'd like to have it. The auctioneer said, did his thing, going once, going twice, gone he bought the picture of the son for $50. And someone shouted, now we can get to the real treasure. The auctioneer looked at the room filled with people and announced that the auction was actually over. Everyone was stunned. What do you mean it's over? There's millions of dollars worth of art yet to go. The auctioneer said it's very simple. According to this man's will, whoever purchased the painting of the son would get it all. Whoever has the Son has it all. And that's the meaning of Christmas too, isn't it? We have nothing else matters except for Jesus Christ. And whoever has Him has it all. Especially the joy that comes with this season. The wise men were led on a journey by the star in the sky that moved them to Jesus. I think it's instructive to us. These were wise men. They had wealth. They had all the things the world had to offer, prestige and status. Yet they knew enough to know that something was missing and they needed more. 
And it was important enough to them to take off on a long journey. Can I tell you again, wise men still seek him. Fools still despise him. God guided them with a star. God will guide you. He'll use different moments and, and circumstances of your life to guide you to a place to meet the Savior of the world. God uses people and circumstances just at the right time to, to get our stars to align and lead us to Jesus. And joy, oh, what joy you'll find when you find your Savior. This joy surpasses anything this sin-cursed world has to offer when you see that journey ends up with Jesus. Then, then this sets in place a whole new journey and a whole new set of opportunities for you. I'm asking you today, do you have the Son? Because maybe, maybe for somebody in here today, this is your star has led you here today. And you don't have to leave not knowing if you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to leave this place not wondering if you're going to be going to heaven or not if something happened to you today. You can settle it even today. Don't make the mistake of going through this Christmas season making it about stuff. Stuff passes away so quickly. He who has the Son has it all. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed if you would today. Do you know Christ, friend? Do you know that you know that you know if something happened to you today, you'd be in heaven? If you're here today, nobody's looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you or point you out or, or uh, do, do anything to, to uh, single you out. I just want to pray for you. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm not quite sure. If something happened to me, I don't know. I don't know for sure if I'd be in heaven. Would you just slip up your hand and let me pray for you? I don't